This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good evening. As I was coming in, um, I gave the talk last week, uh, Wednesday night talk. But when I came in, the Buddha was shrouded in uh, saffron. And uh, we had something constructed right here. Um, and then throughout the weekend, we um, had ceremonies. All sorts of people came and we did all sorts of things. And uh, and now it's just a memory. Not to say it was inconsequential. We now have a, a central abbot and a uh, abiding abbot and so does Green Gulch. Uh, which we had before, but it was different persons. Uh, impermanence. Yeah. What I wanted to talk about tonight was um, equanimity and concentration. Maybe they should be the other way around because as the in the factors, the seven factors of awakening, ec concentration would be six and equanimity would be seven. But I think in many ways, um, equanimity is, I don't know if it would say we could say it's essential, but it's certainly to a balanced, settled concentration. Equanimity is uh, a significant ingredient. And then as I've been teaching in the Anapanasati, the four attributes of liberation, um, impermanence is the first one. And I was just thinking, oh, and of course, we have this dance we do with impermanence. We remember whatever, we remember it, we remember it, we relive it, we reassociate with it. We had the mountain seat ceremony and now it's gone, and now we've returned to normal. As if time could go backwards, and we could go back to where we were before all the workings that were made to allow the mountain seat to happen. And in a way, Equanimity 
is about holding the big picture. You know, can you hold all of that? And then part of the challenge of the teachings of Anapanasati is it says, well, so you have impermanence, and then you have dispassion, and then you have cessation, and then you have relinquishing, uh, just thoroughly endorsing, dropping it all, dropping any kind of way of struggling with what is. And yet one of the qualities of equanimity is to hold all that a human life could put forth. And not just our own human life, but um, our collective human life. Like when we had those ceremonies on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, the number of people, you know, people from five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, Hawitsu and Shungo coming the whole way from Japan. And they came and they went. And the whole event happened and it's over. Is that it? Dispassion. It came and it went. Like spring, summer, fall, and winter. They come and they go. Um, is, are we being asked to neutralize our life? Just let it come and let it go. Is that what Zazen is? Is that the essential ingredient in stabilization and sustained contact with what happens? As we explore what it is to shift from be from doing something to being what is. Is dispassion the essential ingredient? There's, there's a monastery in Kyoto, a Rinzai monastery, and they have what they call pre-koan koans. And the pre-koan koans are about the breath. They're, they're about how are you relating to the breath? And, and then it's um, expressed, that question is parsed out into, if I remember correctly, about 
20 or 30 questions. Yeah. As, as we shift from thinking about meditation, thinking about awareness of the breath, thinking about awareness of the body, thinking about awareness of sound, sensations, um, to having the experience. Someone told me this, I never actually uh, visited that temple, but someone who had practiced there told me, that kind of inquiry into the very stuff of our lives. Yeah. Like an inquiry into, does your, your reset button think, okay, the mind seat's over and here we are back to normal. Is that how it is for you? Or do you feel more like, okay, and now we've got to do this, you know? We got that done, strike it off the list of things to do, and now we've got to do the next thing. That normal is um, a constant flow of do things that need to be done. Can you have 20 inquiries into what you are and how you are? And this whole notion of dispassion. Yeah. The, the notion of that equanimity has as its essential ingredient um, a kind of kind of calmness or, or steady such as it is. Yeah. What if we thought about awareness and equanimity as a constant growth? Yeah. Okay, you can be aware of your, of your body and mind when they're calm and settled. How about being aware of them when they're a little bit unsettled? How about being aware of them when there's some thinking? How about being aware of them when your body's not so comfortable? How about being aware of them when this isn't really what you want to have happen right now? Can equanimity grow in a way 
it becomes more and more accommodating and accepting and engaging of all the stuff of your individual life and our collective life. What if you thought about them that way? For many years, I taught with the Benedictine monk, Brother David Standelrust. And one day someone asked him, what is God? And he said, God is opening to greater being. What if we said awareness is opening to greater being? Equanimity is opening to greater being. Like the way my mind works is like we did something utterly amazing. We created the notion we will build a platform and we will kind, we will call it a mind seat. And we will create ceremonies in relationship to it. And they will be intricate, and we will rehearse the intricacies of it. And we will invite lots and lots of people to come and bear witness and participate. And then we'll do ceremonies that last hours and hours. And then when it's done, we'll feed all the people. And then when that's done, we'll clean everything up. And we'll put all the pieces away until the next time we need them. And we'll send the stuff that we rented back to the rental agency. Uh, and then we'll put the Buddha Hall back together as it usually is. And we will return to our daily rituals. Yeah. What an amazing way to live. What an amazing way to um, express and support this um, practice of opening to greater being. What an amazing thing to put upon uh, our human experience. And how could it ever be simply dispassionate? We're human. We live in a world of pleasant and unpleasant, with some neutral. But actually, if you pay close attention, 
is not so much neutral. A very interesting reflection is at the end of your day, reflect on all the successes and failures you had. And of course, you, you've got to tweak a little bit because you might think, well, I didn't succeed that much and I didn't fail that much. It was more or less in the middle. But what if you just kind of like turned up the volume a little bit on success and failure and thought of like, okay, well, that was kind of like a success. I had an animated conversation with someone today and they were being very passionate and very adamant. And I was searching for some common ground, some way to like, you know, oh, but we both think this and they, they weren't having any of it. And but then so we talked and then we, we talked some more and they got more adamant and uh, and I said well didn't you see that three times in this conversation I tried to agree with you and they went huh they just weren't having it and I thought, okay, then. And then as they were walking away, they said, but I still love you. And I thought, okay, I'm marking that down as a success. <laughs> I thought, what a marvelous way to end an intense discussion, you know? I don't know if they'd heard me quote Suzuki Roshi. I, a couple of weeks ago, I quoted Suzuki Roshi as saying, sometimes you're difficult to love. That's what he said to the students. So dispassion, you know, there's a way in which in that we're hardwired for pleasant and unpleasant. And, you know, it's a basic Buddhist teaching. You know, it, it says there's a term, a Pali term, Vedana, which is usually translated as feeling. But it, it really is kind of like deep-seated feeling and then the, the initiating characteristics of it are pleasant and unpleasant and the, the teaching is that pleasant and unpleasant stimulates something within us you know whether we call it success or failure or whether we you know infuse it with desire or aversion. 
that's how we're hardwired. And there's an interesting way in which we can be blatantly or subtly reactive to it. You know, like it, it, it can be, it can trigger our reactiveness or not. Yeah. And that reactiveness can draw us towards it with attraction and that attraction can grasp and cling. Yeah. In the early Buddhist teachings, there's, there's threefold action and we, we're attracted, we grasp, and then we cling. Or on the other side, we're, we're repelled or we tend to withdraw, or we have aversion. You know? And can that reactiveness, can something in us be not so caught up in our reactiveness. Can we be the human we are? Can we have the impulse towards attraction or aversion we have? Can we have even the, the moving towards or the moving away? Without this becoming a solid reality without losing track of this is a dynamic interplay that life presents. You know, this is how it is for us. I live across the street and there was a priest here, Jordan Thorne, and he died several years ago. And his daughter, I think of as still grieving, sometimes comes around. And, and sometimes she sleeps on my doorstep. And uh, as far as we can tell, She's addicted to crack. Sometimes she leaves the paraphernalia lag there. And uh, and I think of it all as about grief. You know, she comes around looking for her father. Not that she's stupid and thinks her father's still here somewhere, but in a more emotional, grieving way. She's looking for her father. And each time we interact, we just look at each other. 
and uh, I think she's a smart person. She knows all the things I could say. There's no need to say them. Just look her in the eye. Be with her. Let there be a little oasis of non-reactivity. Not to say that the whole situation is just fine. I, I don't think of it as just fine. I don't feel it as just fine. But um, something about opening to greater being. No. People grieve. And sometimes in their grief, they do all sorts of things. That even they would rather they didn't do. And then each of us, every day of our lives, we do a dance between responding and reacting. The reacting, we're, we're triggered. And before consideration, we present something. What if we said the dispassion of Anapanasati, of the four attributes that lead to liberation? What if we said it was discovering how to loosen up the bonds of reactivity? What if we said it's the careful examination of our being that helps us to shift from reactiveness to responsiveness. When I think of equanimity, I think of um, I think of equanimity as the mother of responsiveness. No. And I think of equanimity as the mother of patience. No. When I started that conversation, with the person who was being adamant. As I said, I wanted to find a common ground. And they weren't having any of it. No. And I know the person pretty well. So, and even they were saying, yes, and you could say this and this about me and it would be true, but still, here's my adamant point. And I'm not giving it up. 
Okay. That's your adamant point. I don't particularly like it. I, I don't I agree with some of it and I disagree with some other part of it. And I would rather we find we talked about the common ground, but that wasn't how it went. Patience, you know, maybe you could say at its fiercest, patience is a willingness to suffer. You know, okay, you've got a discomfort. Well, so just experience your discomfort. Um, and then within that discomfort, um, something of our reactiveness can be triggered or not. And when it's not, um, something in us tends to loosen, soften. The, the capacity for responsiveness tends to kind of be more available. And as something loosens, it's almost like we can forgive ourselves, forgive others. Karigiri Roshi said, and his name, Dainin, translates as great patience. And he said, when we take refuge, we forgive everything for being what it is and everyone. And that dances with our uh, equanimity. So be it. That's how it is. And something in us uh, starts to loosen up and our desires and our aversions, they're not being so fueled, you know, they're not being so, so appropriate. It's hard to hate somebody and totally forgive them at the same time. No, usually as we forgive them, being themselves, as if they had a choice in the matter, um, as we forgive them, something loosens up. we can 
think about how it is for them. We can entertain their perspective more readily. Oh, so that's how it is. Something, the the next attribute in Anapanasati is uh, cessation. Something in us, you know, when we forgive, our aggression starts to diminish. The, the vehemence of our anger uh, doesn't make so much emotional sense to us. Something ceases. And at the same time, equanimity becomes more of a plausible way of relating to the human condition. How can any one of us be anything other than what we are? Does it really make sense to look at someone else and angrily say, stop being yourself. Be the person I want you to be. And then when equanimity softens and creates the capacity for responsiveness, then the capacity for concentration or, or samadhi, which has two attributes. And one of the attributes is to experience more fully the experience that's being experienced. Experience it more fully in contrast to uh, having a reaction to it. And when we experience more fully, as Dogen says so wonderfully in the Genjo Koan, we forget the self. And are actualized by what's happening. And in that actualization, the body and mind of self and others drop away. There's no lingering. Um, the story comes to an end. Okay, it happened, it's over. We took down 
the saffron sheets. We packed them away. We put back the bowing mat and just got back to business as usual. Um, can we uh, can we live like that? We do it fully, and when it's over, it's over. Can we be wholeheartedly in it? And when it's over, can it be over? Can it leave no trace? And Dogen says, there's no trace of body and mind, not just as, as an individual, but as a collective. There's no trace of the bodies and minds of others. And Anapanasati says, and when that sort of cessation happens, it's thoroughly let go. And Dogen Senji says, and that no trace continues endlessly. And that's the magic of our lives. Every single day, every single mountain seat ceremony. Every interaction. Yeah. It's still, I would say, you can entertain yourself by saying at the end of the day, uh, what were my successes and failures like today? Yeah. I failed to persuade that person to be part of the common grind of where we could meet and agree. And I had the success of, we didn't end on bitterness. We ended on a kind of sweetness. Yeah. You know, many religious traditions, many spiritual traditions suggest this at the end of the day. I was taught that I was raised Catholic and I was taught that as part of what we did. And I know of other traditions that have a very similar practice. Cessation, you know, can we cease? 
as the bell strikes 8.30. And I didn't get to the other uh, concentration or aspect of samadhi. The other aspect of samadhi is that it flows. It's moment by moment uh, recreation. And so that concentration is what we might call constant contact. Okay, now this, now this, now this. And of course, again, you know, you can't experience this if you're holding on to what happened before this, then this is sort of crowded out. This can't be completely itself. So the contact and the cessation and letting that cessation, as Dogen Zenji says, continue endlessly. Or we could also take out beyond time, take out endless, and just say beyond time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.